You're listening to My Unlived Life, a podcast about the path not taken. I'm Miriam Robinson. A few years ago, my life fell apart in pretty dramatic fashion, and I found myself feeling that somewhere I'd made a wrong turn. I suddenly felt very far from home and family, and felt even farther from myself. I began to wonder, what if I had done things differently? We don't like to ask this question. It threatens to trap us in the past without a map back to the here and now. So I decided to make the map. Each episode, I interview someone about another course their lives could have taken. We begin at the point where their paths diverged and together, step-by-step, we imagine ourselves into the lives they never lived. Because these lives have a lot to teach us about ourselves, if we let them. This week, I spoke to Louise Kennedy, a short story writer and novelist whose work has appeared everywhere from The Stinging Fly and The Guardian to The Irish Times and Radio 4. She was shortlisted for the Sunday Times Audible Short Story Award in both 2019 and 2020, and her new novel, Trespasses, is a stunning and devastating love story set against the backdrop of the Troubles. Before getting her start as a writer, Louise spent nearly 30 years working as a chef, and she now lives in Sligo with her husband and two children. When we spoke, Louise and I discussed what her life might have been like if she hadn't lived in Beirut for two years in her late 20s, two years she credits with getting her out of a rut, but also which she feels, given the amount of time she spent in the sun while there, sowed the seeds for the melanoma for which she is currently in treatment. Along the way, we discussed how adversity can lead to creativity, the importance of a really good girlfriend, and why professional cooking is great training for being a writer. Hi, Louise. Hello, Miriam. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm so happy to have you here. Well, I'm very happy that you're having me. So thank you very much. All works out very well. I'm very much looking forward to um, getting to hang out in your unlived life a little bit. Um, I was wondering... um, I don't always do this on this podcast, but uh, there is a passage in your just exquisite novel, Trespasses. Thank you. (laughs) That um, feels really uh, resonant with uh, what we're going to be talking about today. And I was wondering if you could just say a little bit about Trespasses and then just read this little paragraph for us before we get started. Uh, okay, so Trespasses is my first novel. Well, Dave, you know, maybe saying first is a bit ambitious, um, but we'll see how that goes. And um, it is set in the north of Ireland in 1975 in a town very much like the one that I grew up in uh, on the shores of Belfast Lock. And it's about a, a primary school teacher called Kushla Lavery, who's in her 20s, and she helps out in the family bar in the evenings. So her family have a pub. And um, there she meets a man who is about twice her age and married and uh, Protestant. She's Catholic. Um, and um, all of these things are very complicated in, um, in, in that world at that time. That triggers a, a series of, uh, of events that, um, that um, very quickly get, get out of control. Um, so I'm going to read a little passage from it. And um, this is from quite near the end of the book, but there won't be any spoilers. Perfect. Now she could see that they were twisted together, each informing the course of the other. One by one, she undid each event, each decision, each choice. If Davy had remembered to put on a coat, if Shamie McGone had stayed on the dole for another month and not found himself alone on a dark street, a few pints of stout in his bladder, 
if Michael Agnew had not walked through the door of the pub on a quiet night in February in his white shirt, if Betty had persuaded Tommy to stay in school, what if she was the conditional clause? Uh, I just love that. I love it. We're not we're not going to say what the what if leads to, obviously, <laughs> right now. We're talking about what ifs here, and I just I just love that, and I love in that you know tiny paragraph just the butterfly effect of the whole thing, and I was just wondering if that was sort of on your mind as you wrote the sort of way in which these things, especially in the setting you described, just turns on a dime. I mean, I think that that was very much something that struck me. I think like a lot of people from um, from the place that I come from, um, while it was happening, people were trying to live um, lives, just live ordinary lives. And uh, sometimes that was difficult. But, you know, I, I mean, I... I have to qualify this by saying that I was 12 when we when we left the north and we moved to the south of Ireland where there weren't any troubles really to speak of. I mean, there had been a couple of terrible incidents that I refer to in the novel, but um, really there was very little trouble and it was a, a very different world um, in lots of ways to live in. And, and I've spoken to other people from the north who have done this too, that a lot of us ended up reading about about the troubles afterwards to try and figure out what the hell was that and around what actually had happened because it was just so strange to be in the middle of it. You know, there were so many things to, to, to navigate every day all the time, um, you know. So mm-hmm. I think um, for a lot of people it needed that kind of, ref- you know, that, that uh, period of time to reflect on it. There are quite a few books have been written um um, you know, that would tell the stories of some of the victims of, of the troubles, you know, the people who were killed uh, uh, and stuff like that. And um, and the thing that really struck me was that, um, that sometimes there was this terrible coincidence or randomness uh, in it, you know, people being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I think that maybe I mentioned in the book, you know, that sometimes um, there might be a case of mistaken identity where, um, you know, a man might be shot dead in a building site because... Um, uh, you know, maybe one of his workmates might have been the, the actual target, but he was shot dead by accident. And I think there is a randomness, but also there's a, there tends to be a chain of events, I guess. So I, I think that's, that was really very much in my mind. And then I didn't do it intentionally, but, you know, the love affair, I suppose, that Kushla has with this man, um, Michael, is, is twisted with another story, that of a, of a child, um, one of the pupils in her class and, and his family. And yes. um, I mean, I think as I was writing that, um, it seemed to get twisted together and more complicated. I mean, there were things that I didn't actually know were going to happen until I was actually typing it. I was like, oh, God. Did you did you have a moment where you just kind of went, I, it's too complicated. It's too much. I just, can, can, can you not be this complex right now? Just- no, I really didn't. And I think that's maybe from not knowing any better. I mean, I haven't been writing for that long. And I think that if I had known what I'd let myself in for, I probably wouldn't have done it. But I just went hell for leather at it. I'm just... Well, I, it absolutely works and it's absolutely perfect. It's just, it's such an extraordinary experience to read. And that element of the chain of events, as you say, you, you, those two strands, those two chains that twist together, then obviously knock onto each other. And it's, it's incredible how it, how it plays out. And we want to get at your own chain of events, don't we? So we're going to do that. So what, before we start talking about your path, uh, it's sometimes useful just to get a little bit of a context um, because your path starts um, when you're a young woman. And so I, it would be lovely if you could just say a bit, you've mentioned a little bit, but just say a little bit more about uh, where you grew up and and sort of what your life was like before before the moment that we're going to talk about. So um, I was born in Belfast in 1967, and I suppose the trouble started two years after that. And um, my family kind of moved away from Belfast when I was very small to um, a town on the shores of Belfast Lock, about five or six miles away. And they had a pub. Uh, we lived there um, 
uh, all through the 70s and um, you know things did be become kind of more and more difficult and um, the pub that we had was bombed um, there were yeah. arguments in the family about how many times um, uh, <laughs> now when I say bombed there were bombs planted in it you know there were three attempts at bombing uh, the bomb uh, it, it actually detonated once but there were three we've now agreed that there were three attempts at, at the pub being blown up so I guess there's a message in that you know that um, you know, whoever is planting the bombs is pretty determined to put you out of business or whatever. So the, yeah, so the pub was sold, in, and also like it's really bad for business. You know, <laughs> your people weren't queuing up at the doors to drink in there anymore. So um, not great so for not, business, no. Not great for business at all, no. And um, so the 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 pub was sold in 1975, and um, my grandmother, who owned the bar, and and uh, a couple of my uncles and their families, um, you know, their wives and young children, moved away. Uh, to the south and uh, we kind of limped along for another four years and um, and moved to the south after that. We followed them after that. Um, but I think there was like a very huge change in my life. And I think that this is maybe why I'm kind of a bit stuck in 1975. And I didn't really realize it at the time. I think it's that, um, uh, you know, up until then, um, I lived within walking distance of pretty much all the relatives on my father's side. And, um, you know, the, I had a very sort of free uh, sort of early childhood where um, you know my mother knew that it was safe to, for me to just like wander out of the house and, and go to see my granny or you know my my uncle's wife and her, one of her new babies you know or something like that and then they were all gone and that was really quite a significant um, change and I suppose then um, because I was 12 when we actually left the north as well um, I uh, really didn't particularly want to move and um I mean, I, I don't know. I just, I didn't really have a, a good time at all in secondary school. Um, I probably didn't know my place. And, um, Interesting. What yeah. does that mean? What does that mean you well, didn't know I your don't place? Know. I just think that I probably stood out a bit and um, that, and was kind of unpopular for that. I don't know. And at the time, it wasn't really that easy to be a northerner in the south. You know, my parents were under the illusion that we were like going to the promised land because, you know, we were Catholics in a minority Protestant area in the north. And as far as they were concerned, you know, we were moving to the south where, you know, everybody was like us, but they actually weren't like us. You know, it was a very different country. It was like, uh, um, you know, whatever the north was like, it had its own set of problems. But actually, we, what, what the place that we moved to was um, a very uh, closed, um, fearful uh, Catholic theocracy, you know, where my mother had to get my father to sign a letter for her to join the library. Uh, contraception was only available to married people. There was no divorce. There was no abortion. And also... Um, there was very little, uh, not even sympathy. I, sympathy would be a terrible word, or but even empathy for people who lived in the north. I think they just thought, you know, what is wrong with all of you lot up there killing each other? You know, no, there was I no. There was well, I found out either way. You know, a lot of the time in school, certainly, um, I felt quite others as a as a northerner. You know, so we just had to really try and uh, make ourselves like not stick out or not be very very troublesome or annoying to people. You know, so that had to be sort of. Um, subsumed quite a lot and um and i think that you know it, it's quite uh it's kind of exhausting to live in a place where you can't speak your mind um I, anyway so i i left a uh, second i had done like really well in primary school in the north and i was considered to be bright but i just um like i did really quite badly in secondary school and i somehow managed to like get myself onto um a social science degree program in a university in dublin and um like it was absolutely not for me and um but i managed to kind of limp my way through it and get out of there with um um with i don't know I, I, yeah so funny I, I had to look for my uh the transcripts of my results recently and i got a third class honor i was like is that even a thing or is that just something that they gave me because they felt sorry for me like it is a bit crap i'm sure i'm sure it wasn't a pity honor i, I can imagine they do pity honors 
I intended to be a social worker, but um, I, I it didn't really work out. I, I had a kind of um, tendency to like really heavily overemphasize with people. I did a couple of placements where I'd like sort of start to cry and stuff in case conferences, which is like absolutely no good to anybody. So I left, you know, I was quite young when I left school. I, you know, I think I was like 19 when I did my finals, which is kind of young. So I was like really daft yeah. immediately. I had no idea what I wanted to do. But I went to London and I got like the worst job in human history, I think, which was um, putting microfiche in alphabetical order in a merchant bank in the city. Putting microfiche in alphabetical yeah. order? <laughs> Oh my God, microfiche. I just want to take a moment and think about microfiche because it's so such it was like, an extraordinary blue, relic. These little blue rectangles that I had to put in alphabetical <laughs> order. And each one of them had like balance sheets and profit and loss accounts and everything because it was a merchant bank. Were you doing any writing up to this point? I did no writing whatsoever. So um, what I was doing was I read like a maniac. So um, we didn't have a TV in our flash. So I probably read three or four books a week and I was reading everything. There was a branch of... Um, books etc around the corner and I just kept going in there um, every time I had any money at all and I'd buy books and just like read them all through my lunchtime and stuff so I lasted a year in London and then um I mean that job was just terrible and I thought I can't I couldn't face doing social work I didn't really know what to do and also at some point um towards maybe towards the end of my time in um in college I developed this kind of anxiety thing where I was having like quite a few panic attacks um sometimes three or four a day and um it ended up being really, I ended up with like kind of a phobia about interviews and having to, you know, present myself in formal settings that lasted probably until, probably until about five or six years ago. That's a very specific phobia. It was really crazy. So I was, um, you know, I would uh, go into an interview and they would ask my name and I'd just about to be able to say that and then I wouldn't actually be able to say anything else and I'd like shake and everything and they'd all look at each other and go, okay, and then I'd leave and that was it. So I couldn't go and get a job like a normal person. So I left London and came back to Dublin. And um, so I like I knew that I couldn't, you know, apply for a job like a normal person and do interviews and everything. And also when I was in London, I had become really interested in food and cooking. So my mother was always a really good cook. But I think in, in London, there was like a massive variety of kind of foods and ingredients available, even in the 80s, compared with what you could get, you know, in a small town in Ireland, um, you know, that you could buy like uh, okra in the, in the corner shop. And, um, so um, like I used to go to Carry, uh, Charing Cross Road and wander around the bookshops on a Saturday and there's a place called Dino's where you could get like hummus and stuff it was amazing because it, I couldn't get anything like that um, um, at home you know so when I went back anyway I borrowed money and did a crash uh, cordon bleu cookery course for three months so that meant that I was employable and I didn't have to do any interviews and I did something that I really loved as well so yeah that's what I did and I ended up cooking and running restaurants for nearly 30 years back home yeah that's extraordinary. Where does your path come in? Does your path come in after the Cordon Bleu course? Yeah, so my path comes in after the Cordon Bleu thing. Because, um, so I did that when I was like 21, 22. Then I decided I wanted to open my own place. So I um, leased a cafe in the west of Ireland when I was about 25. And um, I thought this is a fabulous idea and I knew everything and it did not go well. Wait, what does that mean? It did not go well. Well, it basically <laughs> went down the tubes really quickly. And um, I just, okay. I didn't know. So, I mean, I knew how to bake and I knew how to cook, but I didn't understand things about, I just didn't understand things about profit margins or anything like that. It was just really crazy. And also um, the, the place that um, I, so it was a, a, t a little village in the West of Ireland that was like way too much fun. So I think that probably didn't help either. A lot of this is just about me being very impulsive and daft all through my twenties. So, um, I mean, that is what you're supposed to be in your 20s. I, fir I firmly believe. Well, I think so. But I think then, I, you know, I think, yeah, that is true. But I think that it doesn't go very well with having a business. 
Valid. Very valid. So I kind of fell for this man and it took me quite a while, but I think at some point I kind of thought that I ought to stop humiliating myself. <laughs> and, um, but I just wasn't really able to do that. I don't know why. Um, I think um, it's it's sort of funny because um, I remember like people at the time saying to me, oh my God, do you think that, you know, your problem is that you, um, you get, um, you think that fucked up is the same as interesting, that they're both, they're the same thing. Oh God, I mean, how many young women? Yeah, but you know what, you see, I I think that's, I've been thinking about this lately and I think that is a bit of an oversimplification as well because I Why? Because I, and I, and I think that I can still do this with people that I think that, um, that I could sort of see their pain, which is, sounds really ridiculous. No. Yeah. So I think I sort of could, and I think I can generally do that with people. So I didn't find that like really repulsive or see that as badness. Do you know what I mean? Um, uh, as in, as in it, it made up part of the sort of texture of who they are. Yeah. But I think if people are cruel or if they're hurt, I mean, I think hurt people hurt people. So, um, yes. yeah. And I can kind of see that. Um, but, you know, whether or not I needed to, you know, kind of volunteers to be the person who was getting hurt is like another question altogether. But there you go. Well, that's that's the interesting bit, isn't it? Yeah. The, or the kind of the kind of exciting, dramatic bit. That, yeah. That, I mean, yeah. I probably, yeah, absolutely. I'm probably a sucker for drama as well. I mean, there was probably a bit of that. Yeah. Well, you are a writer. I mean, it well, makes sense. Yeah, but I wasn't writing then. I mean, I was just like cooking to be the general head case. But um, I suppose what uh, happened then was that um, my sister, in the meantime, had moved with her uh, husband and uh, her two very young children uh, to Beirut, Lebanon, where her husband had just taken um, a job uh, for okay. a company um, called Solidarity that was going to like rebuild the downtown. Um, and this is in 90... When did she move there? She moved there in like 94, 95. So I think in 96, um, I decided to go and see her for a holiday. And I got okay. there and thought, I'm just going to stay here. I was probably trying to get away from... Um, well, probably getting away from myself, actually, and to stop humiliating myself. So the best way to do that was like to go to another country. It's not a, it's not a bad way to get to, get to do that. So I ended up staying in Beirut for a bit over two years. Okay. Yeah. And working in, and what was the job you were doing? Okay, so uh, first of all, I helped some people to set up a business. And then I was doing some private catering for like, um, in kind of embassies and stuff like that. You know, I cook for dinner parties and um, I cooked in the Australian embassy, Swiss, um, Belgian, like, that sort of thing. Wow. Yeah. And, um, and then also I was um, helping to manage a pub, but like, I don't know how great I was at that really. So I think this is the thing where if I hadn't gone to Beirut, that is the, yeah, that's the kind of what if point, I think. That's the what if, because you were, you were saying that essentially that, that time in Beirut sort of, it, it kind of helped you sort of move past that sense of I don't want to say aimlessness, but you, you, you'd had this business that hadn't worked. You had this man who wasn't working. So I was 29 at that stage. Yeah. I, I guess that is the point where you have to maybe stop doing some of the 20s stuff and start doing some of the 30s stuff, isn't it? Okay. So, all right. So fine. So so if in, in your real life, the, the, the sort of couple of years in Beirut, they sort of allowed you to p- press pause on what you were doing, kind of reconsolidate and then go back to Ireland, right? And mm-hmm. And continue to work as a chef for yeah. a while and then are we saying that you don't go to Beirut at all or you go and you visit but you come back uh, okay so maybe I go and I visit and I come back okay yeah all right cool so you come back and what do you do no business guy is still hovering somewhere in the ether but maybe not 
So I think... And where where you come back to where? Is it, so, it's I, so at this point, I, I, had, I had been back living with my parents for about two years. And that was difficult. Right. Um, so I, I also, um, I um, was being treated for depression, um, except, um, and I was on antidepressants and stuff like that. I used to work a shift in the restaurant I was in, and the owner of the restaurant, um, my friend Orla, who is amazing, actually, um, allowed me to stay on in the kitchen and to bake bread all night and use her ovens and stuff. So I would bake bread all night and then someone would come and collect them in the morning and they would be driven to a stall in the city centre in Dublin and sold um, in this kind of market on a Saturday. And um, But all of the money that I earned had to go to pay debts and clean things up after the, the, the kind of cafe restaurant that I had had failed. So... So you had to do some of that when you came back from Beirut. So in that sense, um, did you just start start doing some of that paying back earlier? So I'm back and I'm still doing that. I'm still working a few jobs. And um, I am probably, I mean, I guess I'm still, um, you know, making uh, trips across the country to be, to, to you know, be humiliated. Uh, uh, All right. Well, I think we need to spend, let's spend some time on that then in that case. if you're So, so where is he? Where across the country is he? So he's in the West. Right. He's somewhere. Yeah. He's somewhere. It's a, so it's a it's yeah. a journey. Fine. What does that mean? Being humiliated. He was just not interested. Um, no, no. He just. I mean, I think it's just. I don't know. I mean, you see, I'd love to say that he wasn't interested in anybody. So I imagine that um, at some point he would have like, I would have, you know, turned up and he might have had a girlfriend. Right. Yeah. Should we say that? that is that what so happened? We'll yeah. So we'll say that I turn up and he has a girlfriend. All right. What do oh, you do? Else? Uh, what do I do? I mean, I think I probably just like probably exit really quickly and um and then probably spend a lot of time like weeping and feeling like really shit. Okay. Beirut feels like it sort of cleansed you of this guy. So we don't have that. So you see him with the girlfriend, you go back home, mm. you get very weepy. Yeah. How, how long you know do you stay I weepy? My, yeah. So I think what might have happened then, because I've had a holiday in Beirut. Okay. So I've been yes. there for two or three weeks. So maybe I have, uh, and, you know, during those two or three weeks that uh, I have met people who are maybe my age who, um, a lot of them, like realistically, a lot of the people who are, I mean, I suppose quite offensive. I mean, it is a very offensive term called, ex, you know, expats, you know, when, sure. yeah, because when other people are called migrant workers, I'm just like very clear. Yeah. Maybe it might have made me curious about um, trying to go somewhere, not necessarily Beirut, but to go somewhere or do something else just to try and extricate myself from things. Interesting. Okay. Where do you think you go? I don't know. I mean, I wonder if maybe I might have tried to go back to London or something like that, because that would have been a great place for cooking. Okay. Yeah. Should we say, should we say that you do that? You go to London? Yeah. So I might go to London. And then I think that if I go to London, I probably um, might have ended up finding that really difficult because of the type of chef that I ended up being. What does that mean? I think because I did uh, cordon bleu training as opposed to, you know, go to one of those catering colleges where it's all like knife skills and everything else. So my, wait, wait, I don't know what that means. What well, does that mean? Yeah, it's, this used to terrify me. I suppose, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. That, uh, sometimes I'd like late, much later on when I had my own business that I might hire a chef and um, and it was all a bit kind of, um, um, a bit sort of blokey and um, and um, full on. Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, kind of the, the sort of knife as phallus kind of. Yeah, exactly. Whereas the sort of cooking that I did um, was, um, you know, that I um, I probably was, you know, reading Elizabeth David recipes from the 50s and 60s and making like nice um, 
sort of pâtés and stews and things like that. And then I'd make cakes and things. So it was just a different, you know, that you'd see on, you know, with TV chefs and everything. So I was, I, you know, so I was probably more of a cook than a chef, if, if that makes sense. So the, the theatre of it uh, didn't really do it for me at all. So I just like feeding people. Um, right. Yeah. I like that. I like that description. You just like feeding people. That's yeah. lovely. So what is that about? Why do you think that happened in cooking? Why did all of a sudden cooking become like a science lab? I don't know. I don't know if it's about boredom. Is it maybe just about things having to be pushed to kind of certain limits and stuff and that maybe all of the sort of creative arts have like, um, and it is a creative thing that they have um, sort of, um, they go through phases or movements or something. Yeah, that's interesting. In the same way as you have literary movements or artistic movements. So you're in London and you're you're what you're struggling a little bit mm-hmm. because you're not you're not fashionable mm-hmm. you're you're very talented but you're not fashionable mm-hmm. so um let's just get a little bit of a setting here where are you living in london in london um in kind of 88 89 um i lived in a flat in crouch end just off crouch end broadway which was lovely and then after that i lived in a flat um uh, with my sister it was Islington, so it was kind of between Liverpool Road and Upper Street. And um, so there were these squares, you know, that we, so from the back window, we we could see these back lines of these houses that were becoming gentrified. So that's the way it was going. But um, if we looked out the front window, we were looking at a council estate and uh, we were above a Mecca bookmakers and a door or two down from us, there was an illegal drinking club. Um, and um, why, why was it illegal? What's an illegal it drinking like club? Shabine or something. So it wasn't a pub, but people used to like drink in there and then come out and fight. So do you think you would have gone back yeah, there? I hope that I might have ended up living somewhere like that. But then okay. maybe that's like really uh, unrealistic because chefs don't earn that much money. So I don't know. Um, was it expensive then? Um, so we're, uh, we're in the 90s, right? Yeah. So this, yeah. So yeah, I guess it probably was expensive, but not anything like it is now. It's really crazy now, isn't it? All cities yes. are like that now, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you'd, I don't I don't actually know who lives there. No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, okay, so, well, what do you think? Realistic? Or maybe you would have needed to go somewhere a little farther out? Yeah, my, uh, I have cousins um, who are all kind of in southeast London and Bromley and stuff like that, and I could probably have ended up like, that direction somewhere like Beckenham or somewhere like that. You never know. That makes sense. Sydney, that makes yeah, sense. Somewhere like that. All right. So you're, you're sort of, you're, you're somewhere South then yeah. in that case. Mm-hmm. And do you have a job at a restaurant? Have you found somewhere? So I think I have a job in a restaurant, but um, I think that I'm probably afraid of those like big sort of chefy, like Michelin-y kind of star kitchens and stuff like that. So I'm probably yeah. in some restaurant that is, um, um, it's probably run by um, people who are like a bit mad or something. Probably somewhere that's a bit suburban and it's probably uh, being run by people who are trying to do cool things, but they haven't a clue what they're at. And I think it's probably really chaotic. So I think so much. So there's probably like great food and then like terrible housekeeper. There'll be some problem. They're probably like quite extreme kinds of, um, yeah. They're a little, they're a little away with the fairies. Maybe, yeah. and they're, okay, fine. And how, and then, and how do you deal with that? What happens? Um, so I think that I turn up for work um, all the time and um, try and work and keep it together. But then there's probably like loads of drinking or something going on. And I'm probably getting involved in that as well with the owners. Is that is that your whole life, the restaurant? Yeah, so I think there's you... probably a lot of that, and I think that um, probably when I'm not working, I am uh, lying in bed a lot uh, reading, or um, I am what am I doing? Yeah, it might be like uh, going for walks and stuff like that, and reading in parks and things. That's probably what I'm doing. And um, that sounds I, nice. Yeah. So um, yeah, I probably did that quite a lot. Uh, like I used to kind of like walking and reading, and um, and then um. The other thing that I did when I was in London, and I hope I, I would still do it, was that um, on Sundays, for some reason, I don't know why it was always on a Sunday, but on Sundays during the day, there's, I quite often used to go to Dingwalls. 
Um, go to what? Dingwalls, which is a club in Camden. So it was like a nightclub. I'm so uncool, Louise. I have no idea uh, what that but is. But I mean, it's probably closed. I think it closed um, probably in the early 90s, probably mid 90s or something like that. Oh, fine. Yes, I didn't and, get here till quite a lot later. So that was a thing that I used to do. And the other thing was there was a, yeah, so there were sort of places that you could go to. And um, so there would be like dancing or gigs or whatever um, on Sunday mornings. Uh, oh, wow. so, or sort of Sunday afternoons, yeah. Um, and I kind of liked that because it just felt very delinquent. And I think as well, if because if you're a <laughs> chef, you're probably working terrible hours. So your day off is probably a Sunday. And there is just something delightfully delinquent about coming into the daylight, um, blinking, uh, you know, with a kind of red face and having a few pints or whatever. So, and how's how's your cooking going? Is it developing at all? I think my cooking probably isn't developing. And I think that I probably, um, I probably come home um after oh. about a year i don't think i stay you don't stay in london yeah okay yeah and um i think that i come home and um and realize that um i probably need to wise up and um train in some job that doesn't have such mad hours or something um, okay yeah you kind because, of max yourself out in london yeah a little bit i think and... that i probably just think it's like too hard or something like that and i stop her um, oh. because there's nowhere for me to go really in London that I'm just not able for it and um, so I think I come back and I probably I think I could probably end up doing something really pretty um, pretty safe like um, I might do like civil service exactly well let's let's figure out wait first off why like why is that what you think um, you would because do? I think that I probably come away from London with a sense of quite a failure because I'm just not really up to that sort of um, full on kitchen stuff and mm. I already know that I'm not really that great at, um, you know, there's a problem with me going to interviews and things like that. So I probably yeah. end up looking for some sort of job that's not really that dynamic. Okay, so you you study for and you take the civil service exams. And at, uh, alongside that, how's your mental health? Um, I'd say my mental health is probably not good. So I'm probably still on antidepressants. Still on antidepressants. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and still living at home? Um, I would be afraid that, yeah, I could be living at home. I, I would be kind of nervous that I would come back from London and move back home and that I just might not have the wherewithal to move out or something. I think that might not be good. You sit the civil service exams and then you, what's the job? What do you get? Okay, so I get a job. I guess a job. Maybe I got a job in a library. Okay. You, you know, not as a librarian, but you know, there are those kind of the entry level jobs you can get in libraries and stuff like that. So I think I doing, get a job in the library. Doing what? Yeah. Just the kind of basic. Yeah. What are the entry level jobs you get? Um, in the I think it's called library assistant or something like that. Where? Right. Um, yeah. So you. Okay. You wouldn't get to like order things or uh, organize events or you know you wouldn't be doing anything like that. But um, you'd just be sort of um, lending, giving out books to children for free. Isn't that a lovely job to have? Giving books to people. It is for a nothing. lovely job. To it have. is a lovely job. I actually did work at a library um, for a little while, and not so long ago, for about two years part time, and it's a lovely job. But I think that's the sort of job that I probably would have had then, that I would have been looking for something sort of quiet and a bit peaceful and stuff. And I think I would have been like very happy to be around books. So you're you're about and, and now we're I mean, we're in your sort of early 30s right yeah. now. You've had a little you've had a little run at, at London done with cooking. It's yeah. kind of defeated you on that front, whereas in real life, you'd stayed cooking for another what, 20, 15, 20, years. 20 years, 20 years. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It would be a library that's maybe not in Dublin. So I, I'd imagine that I've been sent somewhere else. I might have been sent to, like somewhere outside of Dublin, but in Ireland. So I might be in um, somewhere yeah, where? like 
Kilkenny or somewhere, you know, um, okay. about 50 or 60 miles away. So it wouldn't be like a million miles away, but it'd be far away. And I'd have to like go there and not know anybody and um, and like rent a place to live. And it would be a very safe way of reinventing myself. That's what I think might happen. Interesting. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's good. So we've gotten out of out of the family home quickly, yeah. which is which I think we wanted. So yes, that's good. Absolutely. So, all right. So you're living in Kilkenny. You're working in a library. You've rented a flat. Um, and again, so what's your what's the rest of your life like here? Okay, so I people? think that yeah, so I think that um, I probably um, end up marrying like a teacher or a solicitor or something like that. Where do you find this teacher or solicitor? Um, probably um, at a table quiz, at a table quiz in a, in, uh, in aid of some charity or something. What? A, okay, wait, a, hang on, we have to get to that. How how do you end up at a table quiz in aid of a charity? Um, just, just everybody a... from work is going, and um, they they okay. put like flyers around the place. That's some okay. Like, you know the way if you work in a big organization, there's always some really enthusiastic person who like organizes things for charity. Yes, love that organizer person. So um, I'd probably have like sworn a lot under my breath, but gone along to the table quiz. Okay. And I'd have ended up uh, on a team by accident with some sensible chap. Okay. Yes. Who say more about the sensible chap? So the sensible me. chap is probably um, like a local solicitor or something like that. Yeah. Um, or maybe he's like a secondary school teacher or something. Okay. Yeah. Those are the two main characters in your novel. <laughs> oh, no, they are so yeah, that's really funny. <laughs> um, but you know, in small towns that's kind of like what there is a lot, you know. What the solicitors and teachers. Yeah, it'd be a lot of that. Well let's choose. What is he? Is he as a solicitor? Uh, okay, a so I think he's a solicitor. He lives in Kilkenny as so well. He lives in Kilkenny or something, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And he's probably um yeah, so he's probably like reasonable looking um and um and um uh, kind of a nice sort of a chap but I think that within about two years and probably after I was married or something I'd be like tearing my hair out and going what have I done oh why is he boring I would be I was, yeah I'd be bored to distraction I think that could happen oh no I do well, think he's so, just yeah. he's just really nice he's just really yeah, nice he's really nice he's really boring and a bit precious as well oh mm-hmm. precious about what um I don't know that maybe he's like fussy about cleaning and things like that or, oh, or like no. maybe he plays golf and stuff I don't know you say that with such a damning. And that's um, terrible, isn't it? Maybe he plays golf. Yeah. Maybe. So I'd probably be bored to distraction and very tempted to like ruin everything all around me. So, um, so you're still working in the library. You are bored with your solicitor husband. Yeah. Um. So what do you do? I don't think I'd have an affair because I'm kind of not really like that. Mm-hmm. Um. So I don't know. I might just be like really miserable, but like quietly oh. miserable. Okay. Yeah. How do you deal with your quiet misery? Um, probably up the dose of antidepressants. <laughs> <laughs> I'm making this sound terrible. So the other thing, actually, do you know what I need to tell you as well? That the other tell thing me. that I have to say is that if I had only gone to Beirut for a couple of years, I would mm-hmm. not have um, damaged my skin massively and got melanoma. So that's interesting. That is interesting. Do you want to say a little bit about about your melanoma and yeah. what you're dealing with right now? So um, I was born with moles on my skin, which lots of people are. And I had one quite big one on my shoulder and um, uh, I had it all my life. And then uh, at some point between kind of 2018, it had changed a little bit. And then in 20, early 2019, I was told that um, it had changed to such an extent that it was like full of melanoma cells and that those had left, you know, the mole and had gone under my skin and and it actually made the rate a lymph node, which meant that it was like at stage three. So I had surgery for that, but not treatment. 
but um, and and then also the um, so that you know I I didn't have treatment and I seemed to be melanoma free for about two two and a half years. But then I found out in September last year that the melanoma had come back. So um, I'm mm-hmm. it's stage four now, and so I'm in, in treatment again. But really, the reason that I have it is that um, when I did go to Beirut, I um, I spent um, a lot of time sitting outside in the sun, getting absolutely roasted, and thinking that um, um, I was sort of sallow skinned, but actually I wasn't at all. I'm like very pale, and um, you know I'd burn mm. and then go brown. But really, going brown, you know, for somebody with skin like mine is um, is is basically your skin just giving up. Um, so that's why I get a tan. Yeah. So I totally wrecked my like I absolutely wrecked my skin in um wrecked my skin in uh, in in Beirut and that's what caused them. I know it is. I know it's what caused the melanoma. Like I didn't wear factor or anything. It was insane. Oh, Louise, I'm so sorry. Oh, no, it's actually fine. I mean, I'm responding to treatment, so it sounds a bit mad. But um, but you know um, but the melanoma thing isn't really a bad thing. So it sounds terrible. It's not really a bad thing in a way because when I was diagnosed the first time in 2019, I had surgery and I knew I was going to be off work for two or three months and um. So I was here in the house and I did things like I binge watched Call My Agent, which is great. Incredible show. It was great, yeah. And I also watched, um, I borrowed all the DVDs of The Wire from from the library and watched those back to back. So that was great as well. And then I thought, at that point, I realized that that I couldn't presume that I was going to have a very long life. And that if I was going to write a novel or do anything, I probably needed to do it straight away. And uh, so I thought, okay, I, I so I thought that um if I if I forced myself to write like a thousand words a day for as long as I was off work of a novel, um, that I would maybe have some sort of a draft. And um and I didn't manage to do a thousand words every day, but so that was like early, maybe mid March, but by the first of June I had a draft of about sixty seven thousand words or something like that. Then at that point, obviously, you had been writing short stories for some time. How yeah, so I've been writing short stories for, uh, so I started writing in 2014. So that was, um, when I got to Melanoma, it was 2019. So I'd been writing for five years, but I literally hadn't written a word before that. How did it happen that you started writing? So you'd been cooking that entire time and then... The reason I started writing was because um, myself and my husband had a restaurant and we had opened it during the, um, just before the, the, the big recession, which here, I don't know what they call it elsewhere, but in this country, it was hilariously called the downturn, like such an understatement. But um, <laughs> so um, we opened this restaurant in, 20, in 2007 and, um, you know, we were kind of going, oh, well, you know, it could be busier and everything. And then, um, which is sort of hilarious looking back because by 2008, we were looking at each other going, oh my gosh, like where are all the people? Because nobody had any mm. money, like the economy was sort of collapsing and stuff. And um, and somehow we managed... Not collapsing, just downturning. Just downturning, yeah. Just, just downturning. Uh, they, they, they're totally underplaying everything, you know. They talked about, you know, the, the, when the property um, when the property market looked like it was going to collapse here, they said that it was going to be a soft landing, like hilarious. I, I don't even know what that means, you know. Yeah, somehow the restaurant lived along until 2014. Um, and um, August 2014. Um, it was when it finally closed. But in January of 2014, a friend of mine had asked me to join a writing group. And I said no and um, thought it was like hilarious. I was like, what the hell would I be doing going to something like that? You know? Mm. And um, but she kind of kept at me that day and I, I did go along with her. And um, um, I, I suppose um, 
I don't know what happened really. I found really out of place at that initial meeting because everyone who was there had um, been writing. But I agreed to try to write a short story and we did it on like a rotor basis. So I think I had about five weeks to work in a short story. And um, like I said, there's loads of times, but like honestly, from the minute I started trying to, to type, um, like by the within a couple of lines, I just thought, I, like I didn't care if I was any good at it, but I really thought um, that this is what I should be doing all the time. We had terrible money trouble and I thought we might lose the house. You know, all of these terrible things were happening and our kids were small and I was worried that, you know, that uh, about the effect that all the stress was having on them and everything. It was all just really negative. And um, like, honestly, from the minute I started writing, I didn't give a shit about any of that. Wow. I really didn't care. And like nothing had changed. Nothing had changed. In fact, things were probably getting progressively worse financially and everything. But I just didn't care. Well, you'd found your thing, I yeah, guess. Yeah, but it, was like, it wasn't like it was going to solve any... You know what I mean? I never thought it would solve any problems. Like, I never thought that um, anybody would ever pay me to do it. I never thought anybody would publish anything. It was just... Um, but I just thought, um, well, as long as I can do this for a few hours every day, I don't, give a, I don't care about the rest of it. I just didn't care. I do think the cooking, like, taught me a lot. That it taught me to, um, um, you know, to turn up whether I felt like it or not. Yes. And that's like working in a kitchen, honestly, where it's like, okay, it's Saturday night and everybody you know is going out and having fun and you're going to be sweating in a kitchen for five hours and tough shit. So just stop feeling sorry for yourself and get on with it. And honestly, I think that that really helped me to write the novel when I didn't feel well, where I thought, okay, you've committed to doing this and okay, your shoulder is sore or, you know, the tablets are making you feel sick. Well, there you go. Get over it and just... Uh, put your arse in the chair for two hours, like you said you would every day, and just do it. And I think that that was, is really helpful discipline. I think it's brilliant discipline, actually. I've heard that elsewhere, that idea of just getting putting putting yourself in the chair. Yeah. Just sit in the chair. You know, you, there's a lot about writing that you can't control, but you can control you getting in the chair. Oh, yeah, totally. That's it. And, um, you know, that's, I, I, think, I read somewhere that somebody said, you know, if you, uh, you know, um, if you turn up, then the muse might turn up as well. You know, yeah. The music isn't going to turn up when you're wandering around. I don't know, wandering around a shop or something. Um. So in in principle, this has put you in a really different place in terms of in terms of your work. Mm -hmm. But in this other life that we're looking at, you don't you haven't spent all that time in Beirut. You haven't um, spent so much time in the sun, and as a result, we're thinking perhaps you don't end up sort of planting the seeds for melanoma. Mm -hmm. Um. So I think that that if I hadn't gone to Beirut, my life would have been uh, kind of a lot quieter or a lot safer or something. Mm. And I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing. Do you know what I mean? So I think that, you know, if I had ended up in some sort of a sort of quieter or safer job and married to somebody who's a bit quieter or safer, um, I, I don't think that would have been necessarily a very good thing for me because I think that things had to get really bad. Like I'm not the sort of person who joins things and I had no ambition to write at all. But I think looking back that, that things were had to be really, really, really bad for me in my life for me to even consider sitting in that room in a writing group and agreeing to write a short story and showing it to people. And I think that I didn't understand why at the time, but I think that there was some, that, that um, I was at such a low ebb that it was maybe uh, somehow subconsciously I was trying to scramble for some sort of self-respect or some way out of what I was doing, honestly. I do think that, um, that things that are probably on paper are, are kind of um, really difficult or something have actually been really great for me, that they've like made me do things, you know? Uh -huh. And like this, it's, uh, this is going to sound ludicrous, but in the, in the, so it's like three years since I had a melanoma the first time. And um, I've actually had, these have probably been among the best three years of my life, which sounds ludicrous, like ridiculous. 
because sometimes I was sick and sometimes it was painful. And, um, you know, there are like aspects of the treatment and everything. And not, not even the treatment itself, because I'm on immunotherapy. It's not uh, chemotherapy. Uh, so it, it, it works quite differently. Um, you know, uh, for every day that I go into hospital and it takes like 40 minutes because my veins are shite. So, it, you know, for every day I go into hospital, and it takes 40 minutes for them to get a line in my arm. Um, um, you know, maybe I get an email saying that um, somebody in Holland wants to publish my books or something. Or, that, um, or I, you know, the first time yeah. I would heard that I was like shortlisted for something. Or, do you know what I mean? So things were really not... Um, yeah, I just think writing has given me so much that it's actually made all of this like really tolerable and just made me grateful for it as well. Like I had much worse times in my 20s. I was like way more miserable in my 20s, which is kind of funny. I'm curious about, I don't know if I can ask, but is it, I mean, is it, is it scary where you are now? No, it's not really. I mean, it probably should be. I think, um, I'm not, I don't think it should be. I'm just curious. No, I, I, I don't know. I, I actually don't know what's happened to me uh, at all because um, I, I would have considered myself to be a catastrophist. You know, that I wouldn't have been a very positive person or whatever. But um, uh, mm. well, I think the very worst day that I had with all of this was um, at, at the very, very start when I got a phone call saying, oh, present yourself in, you know, whatever hospital immediately. And that was, you know, to confirm that I did have melanoma. And that actually was a very dramatic phone call. Um, they probably shouldn't have made it. Um, but that was a terrible day. And the few days after that were terrible. Um, but I think then since then, I don't know what it is that kicked in with me. Um, but I, I just have managed to, you know, there, there have been days that, that haven't been great, you know, this time since it's come back again. Um, so yeah, I presume that I don't, so I don't know, of course I'm going to die something at some stage, but I don't plan on believe it's going to kill me. Well, I mean, I think fundamentally it's extraordinary that you are where you are and it's extraordinarily extraordinary that you have the writing to, to keep you through it. And it feels like, it feels like the unlived life. It feels like your library, your nice, peaceful, really boring. It would have been terrible. It would have been so shite. Yeah. No, I'm very glad that it ends up just being a bit more messy. It's much better. <laughs> and, the, and the restaurant is completely gone at this stage? Oh, yeah. The restaurant's long gone. Thank God. Yeah. Thank <laughs> God. The day that the restaurant closed, um, I think my husband's like really um, concerned about what was going to happen next, you know? Mm. And um, but I just felt this incredible relief, mm. this incredible relief. Like thank God that's finished. And um, so yeah, at that stage when the restaurant closed, I just didn't really give a shit. Yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, whatever. And he was going, oh my god. But yeah, I, I love, care. I love that the writing just sends you into this completely zen space. It's not that I don't ever worry about anything, and I do. You know, I. Like, I have a lot of anxiety about trespasses coming out and like various things. And, you know, I worry about my children and I do worry about lots of things, but um, um, but not to the same extent that I did, you know. I think because the treatment is making me feel a bit kind of foggy in the head that um, I um, am anxious that that isn't going to, you know, I don't want that to linger because I'd like to write another book. So I'm hoping that's temporary. I hope it is. Do you do you have plans already for the next book? Do you know what it yeah, is? Yeah, I've written about ten thousand words of another novel, but um, I mean, when I say ten thousand words, it's not like you know that's ready. It's like I've got like ten thousand words of notes and kind of mad scratchings, I suppose, for another um, novel. And um, is that is that your pro was that your process for trespasses? Did you have mad scratches and notes? Well, trespasses is really weird, and I think it was because of the circumstances that um. And um, because I thought, OK, so you've got like, you know, maybe you're going to be dead in a year, which is like really dramatic. So you better write a novel right now. So I didn't have time to reflect at all. I literally just opened the laptop every day and typed until 
I hit a word count. And there were some days that I didn't manage it, you know, as I said earlier. Um, uh, but the only thing with trespasses that I really forced myself to do, um, and it was easy to do because I set myself this deadline, um, was that uh, I had to force myself to keep pushing forward and to not stop and look back at what I'd written because mm-hmm. I would tend to do that quite a lot with stories. And, um, you know, if you're writing something that's going to be four or 5,000 words, then it's okay. I mean, it's not ideal. It's probably still better in, in an early draft to like keep pushing forward. But, um, you know, sometimes with a story, if I got stuck, um, there's a temptation to maybe write half of it and then think, hmm, what am I actually getting at here? Or what's this about? And then go back to the start and start to edit. So I would sometimes like keep, I'd end up with like a really tight, you know, kind of opening three or four pages or something of a short story. Um, but I wouldn't know how to push forward. And that's not, a, it's not ideal. But, you know, eventually, so just with perseverance, eventually that would, you know, um, it would either come to something eventually or else it would just think, I'd, I'd have to just accept it. It's not a bloody story. Like, um, although I don't like to do that because I'm a bit stubborn. I can't, I kind of can't bear to think of all the hours that I've wasted. So I do tend to persevere with things. Do you know what, just to stop you for a second, do you know yeah. what I think is interesting is that makes me think a little bit of your unlived life. Like we, we kind of went... And we got to the, we got to kill Kenny and we got to the boring guy. And then we just, yeah. we kind of went like, yeah, no, that didn't work. <laughs> like we don't yeah. like that one. You know, I find that sometimes I get quite um, obsessive about really, really wanting to finish the path. You know, it feels really crucial to me that we get to the end and that we match up with, uh, with your existing life. And we kind of, we kind of stopped. Um, we kind of stopped at the point when the husband got a bit boring uh, and the job got a bit boring. So um, I'm just wondering if it feels like if it feels like there's anything more there to to pursue before we wrap up. Okay, so I think that maybe what might have happened would be I think that um, I probably would have tolerated being a bit disappointed. Interesting in, in, uh, marriage. Yes, I probably would have ended up being one of those people who kind of lived vicariously through our children or something. I wonder if that might have happened. So do you, that means, that means that you guys have children. Yeah. So I think there are probably a couple of children and I think that I'm probably like, um, um, very sort of encouraging with them and very proud of them and stuff. I want to talk for a second about this, this mothering style that we're talking about. So this idea that you're, you're, you're bored, but ultimately you're just, you're, it, things aren't really that bad. And as a result, you haven't kind of hit your creative, yeah. um, what is that word? Sort of your impetus to be creative. Um, yeah. And so you're you're a kind of what you're a sort of helicopter mom, a sort of obsessive mother. Yeah, so I think I probably spent a lot of time in my car reading books while my children are uh, playing the concertina or I don't know what, um, doing gymnastics or you know swimming lengths for hours on end. I think that's probably I'm one of those mothers who's like doing that sort of thing. Okay. Yeah. What what kind of mother are you in in real life? So um, when we had the business, we couldn't afford childcare because, you know, the hours in the restaurant were so chaotic that we wanted for one of us to be with the kids at all times. So um, that meant that, uh, you know, sometimes that wasn't possible. So therefore, sometimes they were picked up from school and they had to sit in an empty restaurant and do their homework. So I think things were possibly a little bit scrappy and chaotic sometimes. Um, so, um, you know, I'd love to have been one of those moms whose kids like did everything, but it didn't really work out like that. Did you feel guilt about the fact that they? I mean, oh, I felt guilt all the time. But I think everybody, do mothers not always feel guilty? I don't know. Do they not? Do, do, is this not a thing that most mothers think that they're not good enough or they're not doing it properly? I absolutely think it's a thing. I really, really yeah. do. Um, I think that, um, I think fundamentally, you just sort of, no matter what you're doing or no matter how you're doing it, you feel like you're falling short, right? That's just sort of. Oh, yeah, it. totally. Um, you know, I know, um, I know people who, um, 
you know, who have been at home with their kids and not going out to work and they worry that they're not stimulated enough for their children or they're too boring or they're a bad example for their daughters and things. And then, you know, I know busy people who think that they've ruined their children by not being there. So I don't know what the answer is really, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we all just feel a bit inadequate. But, you know, we should probably get over ourselves because, um, you know, I think that if you're even thinking about whether you're good at it or not, you're probably okay. So in your unlived life, when you're... Um sitting in you're sitting in your car reading books while your kids do you know, tap dance and swimming lessons and, oh, yeah. and judo or whatever it is that they're doing <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're like taekwondo and then they're playing the violin that sort of thing on a tuesday that sort of carry on of course they are and then and then you're coming home and making them organic meals oh and- yeah absolutely i did that with with uh with tom when he was a baby you know i made all these like purees and stuff and like froze kind of papaya like cubes of papaya stuff and everything and then when with Anna I was just like loving but anything into her that wouldn't kill her you know it was the first one you're like really you're like really careful and fussy and then you realize you haven't killed your your first child so you're a bit more relaxed with the next one I always crack up because I've only got the one and I I, I really wish I, I kind of crave that state the the sort of the caring less state with parenting oh, yeah. I think really I think, comes yeah, in the yeah, second you're never gonna over that with the first one that's for sure oh god yeah. So at some point you um you get your munchkins off to university or something right yeah. so, because and you've and 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 then what happens then um I don't know I mean I'd love to think that I have a mad midlife crisis and like go mad and have an affair or something or like leave home and travel the world but I don't know um I just would suspect that I might be just a bit kind of I don't know a bit beaten down or something not even beaten down you know because that's quite a nice life to have really isn't it to not have to worry about money and just to kind of potter around the place. That's, there's nothing wrong with that, um, but I'd probably be a bit unfulfilled or something. Well, what do you think? I mean, where see if you can put yourself in there a little bit. And do you think they're gone? Husband's still probably quite boring. He's gotten older. Oh God, I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, I probably just end up living really quietly. I don't yeah. know. Do you guys stay together? Yeah, I think so. And just feel like mildly disappointed. And I'd say he's probably disappointed as well. Like it sounds a bit shit, really, doesn't it? It sounds a little bit shit. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad yeah. it didn't go it's that way. Expensive. It's expensive and complicated to get divorced and everything, isn't it? And to have two houses, so a lot of people just stay together. Yeah. No, I've I've just been through one, and it is extremely expensive and complicated. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so you guys just decide to stay together. Is there any? You're probably still reading. You still reading? Yeah, I think I'm reading like mad. I think I am. Yeah, I'm probably in the book club, and that's probably the highlight of my week. And, I, and it's probably one of those book clubs where people wallop a bottle of wine into themselves and not, not talk about the book much. Yeah, I know that book club. I'm probably kind of looking down on the others a bit because I like I've worked in libraries and I'm like an expert or something. Ah. So I, I'm probably just like baiting wine into myself and rolling my eyes like inwardly at the things they're saying about the books. Is there any? And I'm probably I'm probably like a total snob about what I'm reading as well. What are you reading? Um. So I think I'm I'm probably working off all the lists and everything, and I probably recently discovered Fitzcarraldo uh, editions and stuff like that. Oh. Yeah. So I think that's what I'm doing. I think that's the highlight of my week is like or the, my month is like um yeah. A boozy book club night does anyone in the book club get it like is it do you have like one you know sometimes you've got like the one secret confidant who you like you you know that you understand each other is there oh anyone god, i really hope so actually i hope i do yeah yeah oh god that's because i feel like really lonely thinking about that that's terrible i really hope i do yeah who would who would i'm assuming it's a it's a she who would she be who's your oh, i think it's she yeah. yeah i mean do men are men in book clubs i don't know i mean probably but well, we don't jo- we don't know about them because one if they are no, really joking. no i know well we just we just don't invite them to our <laughs> so book clubs join a book clubs if that's the case men should join book clubs they probably have them yes. but we just don't let them into our book clubs <laughs> is there a cool friend in your book club 
Yeah, I think there's a good friend of my book club. Yeah. What's her story? Who's she? Um, I think, um, well, I hope it's like uh, my friend Una or my friend Rose, actually, who I know from writing, but I hope I know them from a book club. Okay. What are they like? What are they like? So Una is, Una Madian, who's a writer. Um, so she lectures in a local um, uh, college here. And um, she is Irish-American. And um, yeah, so I think maybe she's my friend in the book club. And like when I'm swearing a lot and being ridiculous and she thinks it's funny, whereas other people probably find it quite alarming. I like that. I like that we've got a good friendship in your unlived life. I think yeah. I think you're right. It's oh, yeah, no, I feel a bit better now because I'm starting to feel completely desolate. <laughs> also, I think um, one thing I sometimes forget to talk about in these in these podcasts is is the friendships and the female friendships. And there's I just I, they're so important. And I know there's. There's so much, I think there's more, more studies now about the importance of friendship. And I think in particular for women, our, our kind of constellations of, yeah. of, of friends. Yeah, that's really interesting because I haven't, uh, like, I'm not, I haven't like carried lots of people through my life. I think it's because, um, you know, that uh, the we left the place that um, I lived in as a child. So that's kind of eliminates, you know, any friends from primary school more or less. And then because my time in secondary school wasn't great, like I have one friend who was in school at the same time as me, but we weren't really friends in school. That sort of happened afterwards, but she's like the only person who knows me since I was like 12. So she'd be more or less my oldest um, friend. She's still a really good friend. Um, And, you know, I I probably pick up like maybe one person a decade or something. I don't have loads of like really close. You know, some people have lots of friends. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I have about five. But that's great. I love that. Also, yeah. like that one you pick up once a decade is amazing, right? So you're we're coming up to present day in your unlived life. You you've you've shipped your extremely um, brilliant children and well cared for children off to university. Uh, your marriage yeah. is a bit meh, but you've got a book club and you've got a really good friend in your Una equivalent. Um, yeah, so that's it. I think yeah. that's it. I mean, it's fine. I mean, that's not the worst life. I to like have. that. As a, when we were talking before, I was thinking about it like a short story and sort of where things end up. I like, I like that ending for that short story. Don't you? Yeah, I think it's good. It ends with a, it ends with a good girlfriend. Yeah, it's great. Amazing. Well, I think that's a lovely place to stop. Thank you so much, Louise. Not at all. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. It's always interesting when someone's unlived life ends up much tamer than their actual life. Or, as Louise put it, just a bit shit. In the life where Louise didn't stay in Beirut, and ultimately didn't damage her skin, she imagined herself into a setup of safety, but also of almost stifling boredom, without the chaos and the color of life as a chef and, ultimately, as a writer. I was really struck throughout our conversation by the sense that for Louise, safety doesn't exist where many people think it should. Even in her description of her early life in the North, which had a backdrop of violence, she talks about the safety of grandparents and family friends, whereas the external safety of the South produced the opposite feeling, one where she felt out of place and unsteady. Oftentimes, diving into an unlived life can produce real gratitude for one's existing life, no matter what turbulence reality has presented us with. Louise's unlived life definitely underlined the fact that there is something about adversity, tension, and a touch of the chaotic within which she absolutely thrives. 